Uh, if you look on your uh, sermon handout that you got there in your bulletin, you'll see that there's a, a single word title uh, for today's sermon, and that is the word relentless. It's an interesting single word. It can conjure kind of a lot of ideas uh, when you think about what is relentless. I would describe Alaska as relentless. Particularly winters in Alaska are relentless. Uh, you can tell every year uh, in about September, December, when the, the temperature drops down to a, a, about freezing, you can just see the, the PTSD in everybody's eyes and you hear the, it's coming. You know? So winter is, is relentless. And I, I'm coming up on my 31, or 35th uh, winter uh, here in Alaska, and I will tell you, winter always wins. Uh, it is relentless. It gets a little longer, a little darker, a little bit more demanding each year, it seems. It is relentless. What if I were to describe you as relentless? Would that be a compliment or perhaps an insult? Is it a characteristic to be admired or one to be avoided? And I will tell you that that depends on the context, depends on the situation. If you've been coming to Bethel for, for a length of time, uh, you know that particularly in the summer and fall, Pastor Eric's use of fly fishing stories is relentless. If you're like me, you think, surely he can't use another in the... <gasps> nope, he can. Boom, relentless. They just keep coming. I would describe myself as a relentless as being relentless in my passion to help other people see that soccer truly is the greatest sport in the world. Amen? Can I get a... <laughs> Let me have a microphone during the World Cup. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, if you've been around me this month, World Cup, I'm all in. I, I, I love uh, soccer. My passion for it is relentless. One of my all-time favorite uh, memories watching a, a USA World Cup game. A number of years back, they were playing in the country of South Korea, so the time zones were a little wonky. And the kickoff for the game was 2.30 a.m. Alaska time. So I was in my parents' living room at 2.30 in the morning celebrating three U.S. goals as we defeated Portugal, trying to celebrate and not get grounded by waking up my parents at 4 in the morning. So it was a, a delicate balance. But I, I, my passion for, for soccer is relentless. Relentless means stubborn. It means continuous, unending tireless. And, and we sort of understand the, the concept of relentless when we encounter something that is that. And I'll say, as I was, was looking at the, the passage that we're going to be uh, covering this morning in Acts chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, the word relentless just sort of lodged itself in my mind. Now, if you look at your outline, this is not going to be an overly complicated passage. You're not going to waste a lot of ink uh, filling out uh, the outline. But it's clear from this passage that the early church, the early followers of Jesus are encountering relentless opposition. They were arrested in the last chapter. They're arrested this chapter. And Stephen's going to get arrested in the next chapter. The opposition just keeps coming. And yet the apostles... And the early church responded by displaying a similar and much-needed relentlessness of their own as they faithfully carry out what Jesus has called them to do. 
So we're continuing uh, in Acts 5, if you want to turn there. Uh, And the first point that we're going to look at this morning is that following Jesus leads to opposition. In the case of the apostles, this opposition took the form of the religious leaders of that time. And and Luke gives us uh, a little update into how the religious elites are doing, and they are quite upset. Picking up in verse 17 of chapter 5. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So this uh, group of sort of various religious leaders led by the high priest, just for the the sake of today, I will refer to them as the council. It's just kind of this this group. Um, They are mad enough with the apostles to arrest them and place them in jail. Now, what is it that has them so upset? Uh, And and to understand that, we have to rewind a a little bit of what we covered at the tail end of last week's sermon. So going back to verse 15 and 16, here's what the apostles were doing. People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, I can imagine what a conversation might have looked like uh, there at the, the council, and maybe somebody said, I mean, can you believe the nerve of these Christians? We're so angry, we should jail them immediately. Maybe someone goes, really, what are, what are they doing that's so egregious? To which they respond, would you believe it? They're out there healing people and loving people and helping people with all sorts of problems. To which the first guy goes, well, we certainly can't have that now, can we, right? So do you think that they're upset that, that, that they're being healed, that, 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 that miracles are occurring, that, that people are being made well? It doesn't make a, a ton of sense to me, actually. The, the offense occurs in verse 14. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So when we're told that this group was filled with jealousy, it's that. Their jealousy was motivated by the threat of losing power, by the threat of losing influence, by the threat of losing their control over the people. They're not against these people receiving help, but they are strongly in favor of themselves remaining at the top of the power structure. And the apostles and this guy, Jesus, pose a legitimate threat to that, and so they are lashing out at them. So they look at their playbook and conclude, let's arrest them again. Because clearly it worked great last time. So they have them arrested and, and locked up, but then verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said and tell the people all about this new life. So we're minus a a, a number of details here that might have been interesting. Uh, We are told that an angel of the Lord opens the doors and brings them out and then gives them this little pep talk. Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. The angel says, you've got work to do. Get back at it. Keep going. God has you. As far as the apostles go, this wasn't their first arrest. This was not going to be their last arrest. It might have been very natural for them to get discouraged in the midst 
of all of this, when you find yourself fighting the same battle the second time, the third time with the same outcomes, the, the temptation to give up on their behalf was not an unreasonable temptation. How refreshing it must have been to hear from God through an angel. Hey, even though it's going to get harder, you're not alone. I've got your back. Stay the course. In our own lives, we get discouraged as we face persistent and ongoing opposition. Now, I don't get the sense that God is, is often and always going to send an angel to deal with whatever opposition I'm running up against. But he could, but he doesn't have to. See, the application for us is this. God may not send an angel, but he is always with us as he demonstrated to Peter and the apostles. To whatever it is that we face, the opposition that we come up against, we do not face it alone. Just as God showed his disciples that he was with them, he reminds us that he is with us. Verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail locked securely with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. I will say, if you don't um, think God is funny, <laughs> you're not reading your Bible close enough. Like, look at how this situation plays out and picture it in real life, not just on the pages of, of scripture here. Put yourself in the shoes of, of the officers being sent to the jail and find it to be somewhat less occupied than expected, right? I imagine a chaotic scene as, as they, they open up the doors and begin to check behind movie posters on the wall to see if there's a tunnel leading anywhere and how did they get out of here? And they double and, and triple check the locks to, to make sure that they were functioning as they should. And then they begin what I would have imagined is a fairly thorough investigation with the guards on duty and to figure out if they, I don't know, saw anything. And if that wasn't bad enough, now these officers have to go back to the council and report the situation of what's going on. Now, how do you think they picked who did that, Right? That's not a game of rock parchment swords that you want to lose. Like, you don't want to be that guy. So council asks, hey, where are the prisoners? I imagine whoever got picked just did a little hemming and hawing and said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is guards, right where we left them, right there. Doors, fully locked, completely functioning. The bad news, it appears they've been guarding nothing for the last several hours, right? <laughs> but Peter and the, the other apostles do not go missing for long. They're really bad at hide and seek. Verse 25. And someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. And they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. This is a technique known as hiding in plain sight. Let's go right where they expect us to be and stand there and talk loudly. Um, so they send the guards and say, go and, and bring them back to us. But this time, I, I recommend you ask them nicely. 
because the people seem pretty fond of them, and if you take them by force, it might go poorly. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teacher, teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. See, last time they arrested him and, and released him, they commanded them with their authority not to teach about Jesus. So this time as they come back in, they, they've actually subverted that authority and violated the direct orders. And these were not a group of people that were used to being ignored. They were not powerless, and, and, and they begin to try to flex their muscle in this conflict. I will say uh, there is a hidden irony uh, here in this uh, situation. You have to tie back into a couple of weeks as, as Pastor Eric uh, was, was reminding us about the Sadducees and, and their uh, theological beliefs because um, numerous members on this council were, were Sadducees. And one of the key theological points of the Sadducees was they didn't believe in the resurrection and they didn't believe in angels. So again, here, I think we get to see the humor of God. He, he, he's not up there planning an Ocean's Eleven jailbreak and he's trying to figure out when the guard's shift changes and how to shut off the security cameras. That's not how this jailbreak planning strategy goes. I think it went like this. God's like, they don't believe in angels. Let's send an angel. <laughs> and so they, they, they come before the council and, and they didn't seem to spend a lot of the question and answer time with the disciples trying to figure out how they got out of jail. Um, that didn't seem to be uh, there too high on their priority list. Instead, they're more focused on, why are you so determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, this man being Jesus? They don't even like to say his name. Why do you keep blaming us for killing Jesus? To which I will say, it's amazing how quickly they forget their own actions. Uh, if you want to see the tie-in, flip over in your Bible back to Matthew chapter 27, and there's an interaction between Jesus and Pilate as he stands before him. And I'm picking up in verse 19 of, of Matthew 27, it says this. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him the message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which one of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What should I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked, and they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his own hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. See, this wasn't that long ago. In the heat of the moment when, when this group had the opportunity to, to finally get what they wanted and silence Jesus, they were quick to accept any guilt coming their way, even willing to go. And even our kids can have some of the extra guilt, right? But now we find ourselves here post-resurrection and, and 
the church is finding its footing and, and they don't like that they keep having their role in all of this, Jesus stuff pointed out to the crowd and to them. Like the way that these guys talk about it, it's almost like we were at fault here, right? And they try to flex their muscles and intimidate the disciples to stop talking about Jesus, but that is not what's going to happen. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And I'll say just what a beautifully efficient picture of the gospel. Just a few sentences, he highlights the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father and Peter and the other apostles' responsibility and obligation to be his ambassadors to this world. One of the things Pastor Eric has been encouraging us as a, as a church body lately is to be looking for opportunities to have gospel-centered conversations and Peter highlights that there are a lot of ways to get into those type of conversations if we are looking. Um, they didn't, the council didn't ask directly, why do you believe in Jesus or, or anything of that nature? But, but Peter saw a window and an opportunity because they asked, why won't you obey us? They asked the question of authority. Why won't you obey us? To which Peter replied, my ultimate authority is God, not you. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me and what he has told me to do on his behalf. The problem isn't you guys speaking to the council. Well, maybe it pretty much kind of is, but really it's my savior commands me to declare him. And at times that is going to put me at odds with you guys. But Peter gives this great rebuttal we must obey God rather than human beings. But, but church body, I will warn you, uh, far too often I'm, I'm seeing this out of context. I'm seeing this verse grabbed and used in ways that it wasn't specifically intended. Now, there were specific circumstances that Peter is addressing. Before Jesus left, he gave them the Great Commission. He gave them their assignment, their marching orders, that, that Peter and the other apostles are to be his witnesses, Jesus' witnesses, wherever it is that they go. And these guys keep arresting him and telling him to stop. And that is in direct contradiction to Jesus' orders to them. Jesus says, tell everyone. You say, tell no one. That doesn't work, right? Who do we listen to? Peter gives the guidance when we find ourselves in situations like that. Now, unfortunately, the, most of the time that I hear Peter in this section sort of being quoted, it's not a situation where Christians are being silenced on the gospel. It's become this sort of out-of-context checkmate for any situation when we don't agree with an authority over the top of us. Peter said we must obey God rather than humans. But Peter isn't setting up Christian as an anti-authority group of rebels. That, uh, this isn't all that Peter said on this topic. 
He actually wrote a, a letter to a, to a group of scattered Christians that were dealing with some difficult circumstances. And in that letter, he fleshed this out. He says this, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. See, it's so easy for us to want to live in these extremes when so much of Scripture teaches us the importance of wrestling with the nuanced middle. See, Scripture isn't wrong when the same apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us we must obey God rather than human beings and submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Now, there are times when a direct command from Scripture comes into conflict with authority. And there are times that the Bible condones and requires civil disobedience. But if we appeal to this every time we disagree with an authority, we become the Christians who keep crying wolf and nobody is going to listen to us when our religious freedoms truly are being oppressed and stripped away from us. See, Peter isn't giving us a, a license to rebel just because we don't like a particular law or just because we don't like a particular political party that instituted a law. We are called to act with wisdom and discretion on the occasions that the state forbids what God requires or the state requires what God forbids. And other than that, we are instructed to be law-obeying citizens. Peter's not giving us just some, some knee-jerk reaction. And Peter knew what he was saying, and he knew what it was going to cost him. Peter and the other apostles determined that they were willing to pay whatever cost to honor their commitment to God above their commitment to man. And as you're about to see, they are going to pay a very steep physical cost. Peter and the other disciples modeled a measured rebellion. They took their stand and they were willing to accept the consequences. See, their end goal isn't to overthrow the council or the leaders. It was to get back to the work of sharing the gospel. That's what Jesus told them to do. You're going to find them right back out in the streets shortly after this, back in people's houses, sharing the good news of Jesus. When the council goes back the next morning after the jailbreak to arrest them, they actually sort of invite them to come back. They, they, they don't force them. And Peter and the other apostles respect that authority and come back and show up for the meeting with the council, even though they would be in strong and direct opposition to them. And Peter, if you know your Bible, Peter's kind of known for reacting, right? Peter's not afraid to grab his sword and start swinging when he disagrees with something. I think we see a, a, a growth here in Peter, a thoughtfulness measured in his response. But what he said made him mad. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And he addressed the Sanhedrin. 
Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him, but he was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt and he too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged, and then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. See, when this council gets mad, bad things happen. We've seen before, and we're going to continue to to see again. But they find an unexpected off-ramp to their anger in the wisdom of a man named Gamaliel. He was tremendously respected in that community and he had an authority that when he talked, people listened. He gives them this this little history lesson about some other movements and and uprisings that had started and then fizzled out into nothing. And so he points to this guy, uh, Theodos, uh, and another guy named Judas the Galilean and said, man, they rallied these groups and looked like they were starting a, a revolt, but ultimately it came to nothing. Isn't there a decent chance that this whole Jesus thing just kind of fizzles out after a while and we would have wasted all our time and energy and effort? He concludes with, leave them alone, let them go. For it is, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So, so he gives, a, I would say, a mixed bag of wisdom. I'd say some of the things he said were right and wise, and I would say other things uh, were, were wrong. Uh, And he reveals kind of his own heart in this situation. Uh, He's kind of already concluded that this Jesus thing is just like those other rebellions that happen and just give it time. So he's already lumped Jesus in with what has happened previous. It's just another one of those. We've seen it all before. Just give it some time. It'll lose steam. I think we've all seen sort of trends come and go and rise up quickly and thankfully fizzle out just as quickly and, and disappear. We were watching television uh, the other day at home um, as a family, and somebody made a reference to having frosted tips in their hair when they were younger. And um, I would just say, thankfully, the frosted tips moment rose and has gone. Uh, you can picture me on, on my couch last night praying that nobody had frosted tips here at church today. Um, but I'm scared to look up in case I was wrong. <laughs> So we see things come up and then go away and we're like, what were we doing there, right? So sometimes things, if it's not of God, and trust me, Frosted Tips wasn't, uh, it disappears. I think our kids are okay living in a world where they don't know what that is. But on a more serious level, we, we do see things rise to prominence. They don't necessarily disappear as quickly as we need them to. Historically, we've seen things like the rise of Nazi Germany And it's devastating impact of the world. It didn't just burn itself out. From a Christian perspective, we've seen the rise and continued prominence of people that proclaim a prosperity gospel. It's not everything that that isn't of God just magically disappears quickly. It has taken root in places and led people astray to the truth of God. 
But Gamaliel ends with a strong note of truth. If it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God, and that is not a battle you want to find yourself in. He says, you fail to recognize when you're fighting with God and you're going toe-to-toe with the Almighty. And we will see with the oppositional forces that are pushing in on the church, God's will always and ultimately prevails. Gamaliel had the wisdom to recognize that he and his counsel were not the baddest dog in the fight. His speech is enough to kind of keep the council at bay for now. They settle on a flogging uh, and a stern warning not to do it again. And I won't go into detail, but flogging is a really, really polite way to say something that was incredibly violent and incredibly terrible. The apostles paid a steep physical price for their decision to continue to follow and proclaim the name of Jesus in the face of powerful and relentless opposition, it leads to a surprising outcome. You see, following Jesus leads to rejoicing. Verse 41, we'll finish out the chapter here. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. See, sometimes I read my Bible and find myself going, really? Somehow, some way, they left rejoicing. And they went right back to doing what they were called to do. They recognized that that Jesus had done that for them, had been flogged and beaten publicly, embarrassingly, painfully on their behalf. And they were able to find joy, being able to endure just a sampling of what Jesus did and to relate to their Savior in that way. Because see, Jesus had warned his followers again and again and again that being his follower meant that persecution and hardship would come. John 15, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind, hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Uh, D.A. Carson's a, a respected scholar and was reading uh, him this week. He makes a point. I thought it was, it was thought-provoking. He said this, it is almost as if the apostles were, dare I say it, relieved. Now they've been good and flogged and they smile because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. The brutality and the misery of this event sort of helped authenticate what Jesus had told them was going to happen. Uh, There may have even been some uncertainty. Jesus told us we're going to get persecuted, but it's only, you know, we got arrested and stuff. But okay, Jesus was right. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus warned them very accurately to be beaten as one of his followers was not a surprise to them. Now, I don't know if I would take it as far as Carson does to say that they were, they were relieved. I think it's a thought-provoking idea. But they certainly weren't caught off guard. They took Jesus and his warning as inevitable outcomes. 
And it wasn't enough to deter them from the mission that they had been given. This is one of those parts of, of Scripture um, where I see the apostles and, and I see what they, what they went through and what they experienced and, and how they reacted to it. And personally, I just have to admit, I'm not there yet. I want to be, but I don't know that I am. Uh, and it is a reality that there are, are Christians throughout this world that are persecuted, that do suffer physically and socially for, for choosing to proclaim the name of Jesus. That is a reality. What Jesus said is true. It doesn't always necessarily feel true here where we are, right? By God's grace, we get to, to live in a, in a place where it is much more comfortable to be a Christian. Now, a question to ask yourself is, are we better off? That's a tough question, right? We don't face the threat of, of physical violence for being a Christian around every corner. That's not where we find ourselves. But what I worry about for our country, for Christians in this country, that, that we have enjoyed such religious freedom for, for so many years that we have built up a version of Christianity where we think following Jesus should always lead to good and to easy. Because then when we run into problems and we experience opposition, and which Jesus often warned us about, when, when things get hard, when things get challenging, well, now we come to a conclusion that God is no longer good and God is no longer loving. And God's love becomes judged by my happiness. And maybe, just maybe, he's got a bigger goal in mind than our personal comfort and ease. I don't think as Christians that, that, that we are to be rooting for suffering, but I fear that far too many of us have built a the theology that only allows us to rejoice when things are going well. See, Paul tells us that he learned to be content in all circumstances, the good and the bad. Do we allow that to be true in our own lives as followers of Jesus as well. Where we find ourselves in the book of Acts, the pressure is on the rise for the apostles. And, and so we get this little moment of encouragement from a, an angelic pep talk, and we see that they were able to stand their ground and represent their Lord well in the face of relentless opposition, right? And they were able to respond with joyful rejoicing as they relentlessly kept going in the service of their Lord. We are to expect relentless opposition, and we are to respond relentlessly in our joy and love for the Lord. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for passages like this that, that allow to see just what Peter and the other apostles went through, Lord. I don't envy them. They were in difficult spots, and it took wisdom and discernment to navigate it bravery and courage. Heavenly Father, I don't know um, what the future holds uh, for us as a country, as Christians. Um, Heavenly Father, I am thankful to know that we don't go there alone, that we don't fight uh, on your behalf without you. Um, Heavenly Father, you are with us, and that is a good thing. Lord, give us courage. Give us wisdom. Um, 
Give us a desire to see people come to know you that cannot be stopped. Give us a boldness. Give us words to say. Give us opportunities to share what you have done for us because that, Heavenly Father, is good news.